0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He was one of the first students of Indian law, laws about tribal sovereignty and the U.S. government's obligations.
1: We knew if those laws were enforced that it would result in substantial political, legal, social, and economic change in Indian country. As it turns out, that's exactly what's happened.
0: John Echohawk, founder of the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, will receive a National Civil Rights Award. Then think of it as Jewish mac and cheese. We made noodle kugel with a Colorado contestant on PBS's The Great American Recipe. Her family came from Lithuania and escaped the
2: Holocaust. When you think of America, you think all of us coming to this great country, and we all blend together. Our food blends together. I think we're all the great American recipe. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state.
1: I'm from Denver. Aurora.
3: Glenwood Springs. Grand
2: Junction. Boulder. Linus Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Thurgood Marshall Award goes to lifelong champions of civil rights and of human rights. It is given by the American Bar Association. And on August 5th in Denver, it will go to attorney John Echohawk co-founder of the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder, which provides legal services to tribes. Echo Hawk leads it to this day. He was the first graduate of the University of New Mexico special program to train Indian lawyers back in 1970. John, congratulations and thanks for being with us. Thank you. You helped found the fund at a pivotal moment for indigenous activism in this country. It was when the federal government was ending termination era policies that sought to assimilate indigenous people and undermine federal obligations to tribes. Can you give us a sense for what that moment in history was like and how it shaped your career?
1: Yes, it was historic. It's something that we had been hoping would happen. And it did in uh, 1970 under President Nixon, just about the same time that I graduated from law school and helped to start the Native American Rights Fund. Did it feel like a time full of potential to you? Oh, yes, because we had studied in uh, law school, taking uh, one of the first courses ever taught in law school about federal Indian law, that our uh, tribes and Native American people had substantial rights under the treaties and laws of this country that were going unaddressed. We knew if those laws were enforced that it would result in substantial political, legal, social, and economic change in Indian country. As it turns out, that's exactly what's happened.
0: What did you know about those sorts of treaties that had so
1: often been undermined? What did you know about them before law school? Well, I had not paid much attention to that because my general understanding growing up was that Indian people were basically powerless against the federal governments. Hmm. I just wanted to be a lawyer and go to law school. And under this scholarship provided by the federal government for the first time, with the credit of that law school there at the University of New Mexico, they put together one of the first courses ever taught in federal Indian law. And me and the other Native American students that were starting really knew much about that. And it was a real eye-opener. And we kind of realized that. Most of our tribal leaders didn't really know much about this, and we needed to do what we could to help them uh, learn that and help them uh, start to enforce those
0: rights. Give me an example of a right that it was important to you back
1: then to help protect. Well, one of the first cases that we undertook at the Native American Rights Fund dealt with the enforcement of a treaty right that the tribes in Western Washington had under 1858 treaties where they had uh, reserved the right to do what they had always done since the beginning of time, and that was to uh, fish. That was their livelihood, their religion, their life. The way the state of Washington was interpreting that language, they were saying that it didn't mean anything, that the Indians had to get a fishing license just like everybody else. But that's not the way tribes had understood that language when they signed the treaty. When that went to court, that's basically what the court decided was that the Indians owned half the fish; that they were co-regulators of the fishery with the state of Washington. That was upheld at the district court, court of appeals, and eventually the United States Supreme Court. And of course, that was recognition of the treaty right it was not just ancient history; it's the supreme law of the land. Chris fishes food,
0: fishes money, fishes destiny. Uh, yes. I'll note that you are Pawnee, New Mexico, where you went to law school, has more than 20 recognized tribes. And there really wasn't a single course on Indian law to that point. I want you to reflect for a moment on that, that first class and some of your colleagues. How much do you think, well, frankly, those courses transformed the course of Indigenous law, Indigenous
1: destiny, well, as the rights of Native Americans started to be enforced through the Native American Rights Fund and the other uh, legal services programs that were established by the federal government at that same time on Indian reservations, people in the West came to understand that treaty rights were uh, supreme law of the land, that tribes were uh, sovereign governments along with the state government and the federal government. Mm-hmm. and uh, But Indian law basically started being taught in uh, virtually all of the Western law schools, many of the Eastern law schools. So it's been that fast developing uh, area of the law that's uh, widely recognized
0: today. Yeah. And give us a sense for how broad the field can be. I mean, fishing for one, right? And gaming and what else falls under
1: this? Well, basically it's the right of Indians on the reservation to uh, make their own laws and be governed by them. They they have basically all units of government that are recognized by state and federal governments. There's basically uh, intergovernmental relationships that are very important across the country, particularly in the West where most of the tribes are located. I want to ask about the U.S. Supreme Court, which you've invoked. In reaction
0: to rulings against the tribes, something called the Tribal Supreme Court Project began. On a date that will live in infamy, right, John? Oh, yes. 9-11. Everybody knows what that is. September 11th, 2001. Yup, The day of the terrorist attacks.
1: Yeah, that was the date that there was a big meeting in Washington, D.C., called by uh, tribal leaders to address what they uh, felt like was a crisis in Indian country. And that crisis was called the United States Supreme Court since uh, 1970 when the Native American Rights Fund started, then we uh, started to get uh, legal representation for our, our tribes and our people on these important issues that had been uh, swept under the rug for so long. An inordinate number of federal Indian law cases made it to the U.S. Supreme Court for a resolution. For the most part, the tribes and Native American interests were prevalent in those cases, so we had a pretty good winning record going until the 1990s, when the makeup of the court started uh, changing, it became uh, more conservative, and we weren't just winning as many cases as we used to. And finally, in 2001, uh, with four cases involving federal Indian law before the court that we should have won under the federal Indian law, we knew we lost all four of those cases, and the Supreme Court would basically in our argue misinterpreting federal Indian law, and this is what through the attention of the tribal leaders, so they had to talk about how they could try to survive without the support of the U.S. Supreme Court. It mainly meant that uh, we really had to stay away from there and monitor any cases that might be added up that way because we were probably going to lose.
0: Hmm. So the idea was to get involved early and often. Yes, mm-hmm. the tribal
1: leaders asked us to work with them at their national Intertribal organization called the National Congress of American Indians. So, since 2001, we've been working with NCDI, monitoring all these cases, and do what we could to uh, keep them away, or if they make it to the court, then to try to present briefs and arguments in a way that conservative justices would understand better. I wonder what your reaction was
0: to the ruling this term that the federal government has no affirmative duty to help the Navajo Nation secure water. I'll note that it's the Justice from Colorado, from the West, Neil Gorsuch, who wrote a dissent, right?
1: Yes, that's right. Justice Gorsuch is one of the few justices that really had much of a, of a record on uh, federal Indian law issues. And his record was really good. One of the things the tribal leaders have us do whenever there's a nomination to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court is to uh, research the uh, record of that nominee on federal Indian law issues and report that the tribal leaders, and then they decide whether they're going to support the nomination or oppose that or uh, remain silent. They supported uh, Justice Horsington's nomination, and that's turned out to be a good thing because he has been with the tribes in uh, the Supreme Court cases that have come up while he's been on the court that involve federal Indian law issues. And when he hasn't been in the majority, then he's. Uh, great uh, dissents criticizing the majority decision against the tribes. And that's what happened in this Arizona against Navajo Nation case.
0: Yeah. And what was your sense of that ruling about water?
1: Well, of course, I thought it was wrong. Under federal Indian law, our lands and natural resources like water are held in trust for us by the federal government. The government is our trustee, and everybody knows what trustees do. They're supposed to help the beneficiary. So when we need to protect our water rights, since they have uh, the legal title to those water rights, they're supposed to help us protect those rights. But the Supreme Court said, no, there's no specific language in the treaty or any other law that says they have to do that. And just the general uh, duties of a trustee don't really apply here. And that really changed the law in our view on this uh, federal trust responsibility that's been around forever.
0: Hmm. I want people then to understand what a sea change this is for you, in the way that perhaps people pointed to the abortion ruling or to the ruling on 303 Creative having to do with public accommodation laws. You see the Navajo Nation case as a kind of new judicial threshold. Is that
1: right? Yes, it's a new interpretation of the federal trust responsibility that's so important to the tribes and Native American people and uh, the way we've understood it. And now it's really kind of up to the federal government to uh, decide what they're going to do to help protect our land and natural resources, you know, unless we have a very specific law that says they have to do it, then they can stand idly by and not help us protect our land and our uh, natural resource. So d- would you go to Congress asking for such a law? Well, that's something that's being uh, discussed now in Indian country, and uh, let's we'll see what happens. Do you want a law like that? Well, it would certainly help, but of course, that's not easy to get a law passed, so we have to evaluate the possibilities of such a law that was introduced being passed by the Congress and whether it would be worth the effort.
0: What do you think is the new
1: frontier of, of Indian law? Well, it's always been... Uh, the uh, interpretation of federal Indian law by the United States Supreme Court. And uh, like I was explaining, it's changed over the years since the tribal Supreme Court project was started in 2001. uh, We uh, gradually improved the win-loss record and then that changed a little bit and then improved a little bit. And particularly with Justice Gorsuch on the court now, the last three years, we basically had a winning record, but uh, whether that's gonna be able to continue into the future Of course, we don't know. It all depends on the makeup of the court and the uh, nature of the cases that go before the court.
0: One justice who had a a good understanding of this area of the law was Thurgood Marshall. Many of his opinions strengthened tribal rights. What does Thurgood Marshall mean to you, the namesake of the award you'll receive?
1: Well, when I was uh, in law school, uh, that was a time when, of course, the uh, civil rights movement was going on. The uh, primary issue there was rights of African Americans to uh, equal rights and equal treatment under the constitutional laws of this country, and just like our Native American people, most of them were poor and didn't have lawyers, and for the most part, they were represented in the big cases by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Herbert Marshall, of course, at one time was the executive director of that before he went on the Supreme Court. So uh, when he was on the Supreme Court, I was really pleased to see him addressing those issues for uh, African-American people in a positive way, seeing the gains that they were making uh, in asserting their civil rights, and really drew inspiration from that in terms of thinking about the uh, Supreme Court eventually uh, deciding uh, to protect treaty rights and sovereignty and self-determination of Native American nations, and that's basically what happened, Thurgood Marshall played a, an important role in that during the time he was on the U.S. Supreme Court, he uh, wrote more uh, favorable opinions on uh, these federal Indian uh, law cases that made it to the Supreme Court than any other justice. Hmm. He was the active one. I'll always remember him.
0: Do you think the NAACP's legal model inspired you and the Native American Rights Fund?
1: It sure did. That. Uh, also inspired the formation of the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund before uh, the Native American Rights Fund was established. And those were the models that we used when we did establish the Native American Rights Fund. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. And congratulations
0: again, John. Thank you, Brian. John Echohawk leads the Native American Rights Fund in Boulder. He'll receive the Thurgood Marshall Award. When we come back, a first-generation American cook gives us her take on the great American recipe. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News is about people who rely on the river that shaped the West and have ideas to save it.
5: We cannot just allow
1: nature to disappear.
4: Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. In her sunny kitchen south of Denver, Abby Odenwalder blends a rich mix of eggs, cream cheese, sour cream, cottage cheese, and sugar. She'll add vanilla too, but you might not expect this next ingredient.
2: Now we're gonna pour in our noodles.
0: Yes, noodles, egg noodles. Odenwalder is making noodle kugel. She thinks of it as Jewish mac and cheese, and it's the kind of recipe that landed this first-generation Lithuanian-American on a PBS cooking show.
4: This is The Great American Recipe, a celebration of foods from
2: across the country to around the globe. I'm Abby Odenwalder. I'm 64 years young, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I grew up in Kankakee, Illinois. I was the only Jewish kid along with my brother. And then I went to Colorado where I met my husband, and we have two beautiful children. As a home cook, I love feeding my family. I love to cook and I love to make everyone happy.
0: That desire to make people happy was clear the second we walked into her home in Centennial. We came to make Noodle Kugel together and talk about how the dish connects her to her ancestors, some of whom escaped the Holocaust. And just in case we were peckish, she laid out homemade hummus with za'atar spice and harissa oil. There was mandel bread, kind of like Jewish biscotti, and water infused with fresh citrus. Truth be told, we snacked a little, and then it was on to this noodle kugel.
2: Your favorite food, right?
0: This is very funny. Um, So this is a very Jewish dish.
2: Yes, it is. It is is
0: not one I ever took to as a kid, even though it's got flavors kids like, right? Cinnamon.
2: Mine does not have cinnamon. Mine does not have jelly. All right, let me tell you a little secret about noodle kugel. I didn't like it either as a kid. Okay. Did your kids like it? My kids did not really like it either. <laughs> now they like it. All right, I grew up with a savory noodle kugel. This is what my mother made. It wasn't sweet in any way. Mm. Um, and being the good Jewish family that we were, she served her noodle kugel with roast beef. Oh. <laughs> and if you know anything about uh, Jewish dietary laws, all right, you don't mix meat and dairy.
0: You were not keeping a kosher home.
2: We were not keeping a kosher home.
0: Hard to do in Kankakee, Illinois, I guess
2: Very hard to do. Um, however, I will tell you that my grandparents and many other people in Kankakee, they did separate meat and dairy. But my mom, being a so-called modern Jew, did not feel that that was something... I, I don't know. I don't know what her reasons were, but we just never did that. Convenience, maybe. Probably. it was. You couldn't get kosher meat even though my grandfather had a grocery store and cut his own meat, but it was still hard. We were still 60 miles south of Chicago, but they never would eat shellfish their entire life. So Uh we were still, we had our boundaries.
0: (laughs) So I do think of noodle kugel as something that has cinnamon. Usually it's got raisins, right? No
2: raisins in mine. After many years of not liking my mother's noodle kugel. I decided it was time to create my own. And when we moved to Denver and met other Jewish families, I had tasted other noodle kugels and I thought I have to try this again. Really, Ryan, if you think about it, all right, noodle kugel is like Jewish mac and cheese. I happened to put cornflakes on top of mine and toss them with lots of butter. So you've got the sweet creaminess of the kugel, a little vanilla flavor, a little sweet, and then you put on these crushed cornflakes that have been tossed in butter, and you have the contrast. Um, frankly, I think it's pretty good. Mm. And What um, does kugel mean? I don't know. Kugel means round or dome or ball. And it was based on a German word, and it was kugel, was a round bread. And so round, I think, became associated with it. But then I think when Jews moved to this country, all right, rather than using a round pan, they would bake it in a square pan. Um, but for the sake of the great American recipe, I bake mine in little individual cups, which I think keeps it creamier, keeps it from getting dry. Mm -hmm. And who doesn't want their own little cup?
0: Yes, you can manage the consistency that way Mm -hmm. to some extent. And this was a winning recipe on the Great American Recipe, wasn't it? Shocker,
2: wasn't it? (laughs) A kugel! Um, Yeah, it was. Have you
0: converted your children to liking kugel again? My
2: daughter does like my kugel. And she's in Philadelphia. And so when she decides to make a traditional meal. She will call me for my kugel recipe, but I also have a blog. So it's all my recipes are on there.
0: Okay. The blog is called This Is How I Cook. We'll link to it at CPR.org.
2: So these are the Manashovitz white egg noodles. Yeah,
0: so Manashovitz white egg noodles, they have a little twist.
2: salted water. Okay, very good salt. You want it like seawater. okay? I tossed it with three tablespoons of butter. To start, okay, so they're ready to go. So, right now we have buttered
0: salted noodles.
2: Buttered salted noodles. I mean, my daughter would eat these by themselves. I was gonna say, so would I. When I do recipes, I like to gather all my sources and then combine it into my recipe, Mm.
5: Um,
2: which is kind of a a fun way to do everything. It's
0: a lot of work too, though.
2: Yeah, but that's how you become a cook.
0: Where do you keep all your cookbooks? You must then have hundreds of them.
2: I have over 500 and you can open my doors. Uh-huh. They're all <laughs> organized. Um, that's just the start, all right? <laughs> I have more surrounded me in the house. I, I have a lot of cookbooks. A lot of cookbooks. And my mother just downsized, and now I'm inheriting a lot of her cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And she's she's a great cook, too. She We, we ate very basic as a child. Except we had meat every night because of my grandfather being a butcher. But we did eat um, pretty traditional, standard food. You know, we had roast beef one night, steak one night, hamburger one night. Chicken was a special dish. Chicken, okay. <laughs> because they cooked meat every night. Yeah. So, in any case, now...
0: Hand blender. Beautiful blue hand, hand ba- bl- I'm bl- blender. I'm jealous of this thing.
2: Um you want to make it nice and creamy and light. I guess you've chosen something quieter,
0: huh? No, it's radio. We love sound.
2: Oh, you love sound?
0: This is perfect. <laughs>
2: okay. You and got sound.
0: You're getting something now. The consistency of almost it's maybe all- heavy whipping cream.
2: Exactly, you're a cook, I can tell.
0: Well, no, I just like food. You
2: just like to eat?
0: Do you think of noodle kugel as an American recipe? And I ask that because the PBS show is the great American recipe, and one of its missions is to expand what we think of as American cuisine.
2: This is what I would say to that. All right, the great American recipe features people of multicultural backgrounds which was the best part of the Great American Recipe. We all became great friends. We all learned about each other. It's just very special, but when you think of the United States, you think of America, you think all of this coming to this great country, and we all blend together. Our food blends together. So what actually is the Great American Recipe? I think we're all the Great American Recipe. I think every family has what they consider their favorites Mm -hmm.
0: by the way you are mixing the egg noodles now into our concoction good it's beautifully coated very consistent I'm
2: gonna taste it how is it want to taste sure it's really good is it really good see you'll see a little bit of sweetness a little bit of richness Mm. okay
0: that vanilla is bursting a
2: little just a little bit of vanilla all right.
0: But I think about these contentious dinner tables these days.
2: You know, it's sad. All right, you know, families are families. They should be able to talk about everything. I, I can tell you, I have a family like that. I'm on opposite ends of my brother, but we still can talk about it without fighting. If people can't talk, how can they ever figure out how to solve the world's problems? It can't just be fifty percent here and fifty percent there. Somehow, we have to blend together. And I think it's that way with food. I think it's that way with people. We all have to learn to like each other and respect each other. You don't have to love everyone, but you have to respect them. And you have to know their backgrounds and where they're coming from. I, I, I strongly feel that that's important.
0: Do you um, get into TIFFs with your brother?
2: <laughs> we agree virtually on the same things, okay? My brother is gay. He's married. And when it comes to anything social, I'm totally on the liberal side. All right. But when it comes, you see, you're pushing me into these things, aren't you? (laughs) When it comes to economics, I'm totally on the conservative side. So where am I? Where does that put me? Yeah. Okay. It puts me kind of smack dab right in the middle. And is there candidate for me? Not right now, because I know that's where you're going.
0: Oh, it's not actually. But but I appreciate this notion Mm -hmm. that it's hard to box people in. It's
2: very hard. And that our
0: politics today Mm -hmm. tends to make you tick a box.
2: It does make you tend to tick a box. And what I will tell you is when you grow up as a Jew in a small town and people say, oh, you don't look like a Jew, what am I supposed to look like? Well, and these were kids. This was when I was growing up in elementary school and junior high, you name it. Well, I'm supposed to have frizzy hair, which maybe in this humidity I do. (laughs) Okay. I'm supposed to have a really big nose. Okay. I'm supposed to have really curly hair too, besides being frizzy. And I'm like, hmm. And, you know, my father, being new to this country at the age of six, he grew up really wanting to become Americanized. I grew up. And this is the whole thing about dividing people up. I grew up wanting to be pegged as a Jew. Hmm. Now, I'm very proud of being Jewish. I'm very happy to tell you anything that I may know about Judaism. But every time you want to lump someone into a category, it's very sad for me.
0: You know, I have lived in any number of places where I'm the first Jewish person someone has met.
2: See? Has
0: that happened to you?
2: It doesn't so much now. I mean, now I'm getting older. We've been in Denver a long time. But it certainly happened when I was growing up. And I think food is a great way to bring people together. Speaking of. Yes. Is it time to
0: put this in an oven?
2: Well, this is what we're going to do. Okay.
0: Okay. Is there more butter waiting here?
2: (laughs) There is more butter. What
0: are you trying to do to me and my arteries?
2: You know what? I'm going to smash some cornflakes, too. In this case, they're going to be crispy because we're going to toss them with butter. And they're going to be good and crispy. And they're going to contrast with the soft, creamy texture of our kugel.
0: And will this be a topping or will this be integrated in it? No,
2: this is a topping. A
0: topping. This okay. is a
2: topping. I don't know about your mom, but my mom, when she used to do this, she used to crunch with her hands the cereal and then she would dot butter on. And you can't... Dot, dotted butter stays in one spot. Mmm. All right, but when you mix it up with the cornflakes...
0: You were crunching those up in a Ziploc baggie. And now you've poured them. It's a
2: good way to take out aggression. (laughs) (laughs) You just crunch away. So, but then we're just gonna toss them so that they're nicely mixed with the butter. We're gonna fill our little muffin cups.
0: Individualized portions of noodle kugel, this fabulous Jewish dish that maybe, just maybe I'll grow to like this time.
2: Maybe you will. Maybe you will. But I do think this is a better way to do it. Um, You could still bake it in a casserole. So we're gonna put these in the oven, 350, about 20 minutes. Okay. And you will have noodle cocoa. And yes, I do set a timer.
0: (laughs) Oh, look at those toasted tops those lovely cornflakes and you can smell that vanilla
2: can you smell it yeah let's see how they get just a little crunchy and you can see inside to see how creamy it is
0: i think what i'm excited about is that this looks indeed rich and creamy as opposed to desiccated and (laughs) disappointing
2: well let's see here You think it meets the qualifications of Jewish mac and cheese comfort food? Or do you need a taste of it? I need a taste for sure.
0: Comfort me. We got a little crunch. We've got a lot of cream and it's not too sweet. It's not cloying.
2: Right, not cloying.
0: I just never understood why there had to be so much
2: so did I convert cinnamon. you? No, I've there's been no converted. Cinnamon. You've been converted?
0: I've been converted. I mean, you
2: could sprinkle cinnamon in. You could put it in. And truly, it, it should set just a little bit more than we let it. Um, and then it, it, I don't want to say the word congeal.
0: Congeal is not a pretty word. No, it's not a but pretty word. But it forms. It right. coheses. Forms.
2: Oh, I like your words. You mm-hmm. know, I
0: think that your description of this as Jewish mac and cheese is spot on. Yeah. There's a Martha Stewart mac and cheese recipe with bechamel.
2: Oh, okay. And it's
0: similar to that. Except we're using, you
2: know, nice, healthy butter and cottage cheese. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And a little sour cream. So it's all in there. I mean, all the standard things that you would put in mac and cheese, um, minus like a hard cheese, like cheddar or mm-hmm. something like that. Gruyere um, or
0: something. Yeah. No. I, I want to talk about the experience of being on television. Do your neighbors now go, oh,
2: your little un- girls do. They're, I think, six and eight. Oh, I'm famous with them. <laughs> <laughs> so cute.
0: The show, the Great American Recipe, found you through your Instagram. Um, you also have a food blog for about the last eleven years called "This Is How I Cook." But you I understand that your daughter suggested you blog.
2: I have twins. A son and a daughter, they went away to college in 2008, and she used to call home for recipes, especially when she was abroad and she had a kitchen because she lived in the dorm the whole time. My son always called home because he had an apartment. What about this recipe? (laughs) And you have to understand, I'm not that kind of a cook. We don't have meatloaf one night and barbecue chicken the next, and we just never ate that way. So when they say, oh, I want that chicken recipe. I have no idea what they're talking about because I've made a million chicken recipes.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: And that's why I have over 700 recipes on my blog. But she said to me, mom, you need to start a blog. And I said, what is a blog? Zoe? <laughs> I don't know what a blog is. Mom, you can keep track of all your recipes. I'm like, Okay, and this is when my husband... I
0: like that she was suggesting it. Yes. As for you. For me. When really, this was a way to communicate with your children.
2: Exactly, Ryan. (laughs) Exactly. It was a way. And, And you know what? It was a great way because I love more than anything about my blog. I love to write. And in the beginning, I told a lot of stories about the food and where they came from, my history growing up we talked about their birthdays and different cakes they would like to eat when I baked things for them. Um, It was just a good way for me because I consider myself more creative type to also do something with that. And I really just started this for fun. It was not, you know, there was no advertising. My photography back then was horrible. (laughs) The fact that I grew over 11 years, and then I actually kept doing something for 11 years was shocking to me.
0: Yeah, that's a lovely yeah. commitment, though, and I it love becomes it. A fa- almost like a family photo album.
2: It does, you know? and I try not to subject my my readers to too much of that, but you know, you you can't help it. And then my son lived in China for years, so he was always calling for recipes.
0: This show isn't like other cooking shows where contestants get eliminated each week. Everyone stays until the end. And in the finale, you have to prepare an entire meal. It's airing August 7th. What can you tell us about your
2: (gasps) You got to watch the show. Uh Sure, sure.
0: (laughs) Well, the winner will have one of their dishes grace the cover of the Great American Recipe Cookbook... I imagine that's one more you'll have in your collection.
2: <laughs> Actually, I already have it. Um, oh. They, yes, they did send out, and we do already have the cookbook, but I'm not sharing anything. Yeah, you know, that's
0: proprietary, so. mm-hmm. I understand. It's not a big financial payout if you win. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily being featured in some fancy restaurant. So what's the takeaway for you?
2: The takeaway for me was, one, I strongly believe in doing things you've never done before. Hmm. You only live once. Uh, I, YOLO. YOLO, And I yes. learned that from my daughter. She kept saying, YOLO. I said, what's YOLO? You only live once. And for me to be on the show, it was a great opportunity to meet people that I would have never met in my normal life. Um, when you throw together people in what was a stressful situation, Um, When you're cooking under pressure, I'm used to cooking for love and taking my time and, Mm. you know, trying whatever I want. But this is a process and you have to really think it through. And you've got time frame commitments and ingredients are different, even though they really try to get you what you need. But ingredients are different. The cooking situation. I don't use a gas stove. It was a gas stove. Everything is temporary. No sink. I could go on and on and on. But the best part of the show was being with these other people. And we were together for a good three weeks, getting to know Mm. each other. And I don't rarely find myself in a situation to talk with people about food. And we could talk food all day long. Forget the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. let's talk food.
0: Just before we go on the subject of you only live once, I'm thinking about the fact that you're a first-generation American and that if the fates had been different your family might not have gotten out Oh we
2: were close Ryan in
0: terms of the holocaust
2: That's right we were very close and and when i think of of all of that i think about given that i'm a food person all the recipes that were lost and the history behind the recipes. And when I cook Jewish food, and I, and I don't cook Jewish food every day, I cook it for holidays, but when I do cook Jewish food, I try to channel my inner memories and thank them for what they've given to me because I, I truly do believe food has a story, and I believe whatever anyone cooks, you need to know the story behind that food.
0: Thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for making me like Kugel. Uh,
2: like I said, a Kugel. Mm-hmm. But yes, I'm glad you like it.
0: Home cook and doting Jewish mother, Abby Odenwalder of Centennial. She's a contestant on The Great American Recipe. The finale airs August 7th on PBS. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Indy one two three with Things You Can Bring the underground music showcase bring some suntan lotion that's that's definitely a must fanny packs and or hip bags led gloves gopros are good and with all the shouting singing cheering you're most likely taking part in lip balm is always a good festival friend that's just some of the things you can bring to this year's UMS. The Underground Music Showcase. July 28th through the 30th. Three days, multiple stages,
1: hundreds of fans, and one app to help you map them all. Google Play and at the Apple Store. Tickets, weekend passes, and weekend four packs. UndergroundMusicShowcase.com. Info on where
0: we're set up. nd 123org You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Rock climbers on federal lands are worried a key element of the sport could be banned soon in some places, and they've roped in federal legislators for help. CPR's Tom Hess and Caitlin Kim explain why folks are fixated on what are known as fixed
5: anchors. You said the drill and everything's already up there? Yes. It's Sunday in western Colorado's Uniweep Canyon, and Randall Chapman and Bob Eagle are getting an early start. This area is an under-the-radar mecca for Western Colorado's well-traveled climbers, and they've got a climbing route to install before it gets too hot. Two days ago, I I hoofed up a a heavy load of uh, equipment, and I tweaked my back. So Randall's being kind to me today. (laughs) Normally, (laughs) I don't think he would offer to carry my pack, although he probably would. The heavy pack Eagle carried up earlier was full of climbing gear, including fixed anchors. Equipment that's meant to remain on the rock face, often bolted in, for climbers to clip into. Now, he and Chapman are taking the steep, 20-minute hike back up to a formation called the Beehive. Thank you
3: so much. Yeah, you're welcome. That's heavy, (laughs)
5: man. No, that's not bad, not too bad. For route development, this is light. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I'll follow you. Okay. I'll follow you guys. Fixed anchors allow for safer climbs. They're not the only option but are often used for popular routes so climbers aren't constantly using temporary anchors that can damage the rock over time. And Chapman, who's just hiked a few hundred vertical feet with a load of climbing gear, says they beat the alternatives. If we have a fixed anchor there, then that means thousands of people can use that fixed anchor. Whereas if we have, like, uh, say, slings around a tree or around a, uh, a horn in the rock, then you know maybe a, a couple hundred people could use it. Or if it's not popular, the sun will rot that before... Anybody else gets to use it. Um, so as far as like environmental impact, it's a lot friendlier to just put a couple bolts in. Chapman and Eagle are installing this new route about 50 miles northwest of the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, where a fight is brewing over fixed anchors. The National Park is considering a ban following the philosophical belief that parks and wilderness areas should be as pristine as possible. We've all heard that phrase, leave no trace. That proposal worries many climbers. Chris Ryder has climbed Black Canyon's iconic cliff faces and said while he understands the impulse for minimal impact, few in the climbing community think fixed anchors should be done away with, even in heavily protected areas. Probably a few people who uh, don't like a lot of fixed
1: anchors in the wilderness, but I'd say that's like maybe 1%, if that, of the climbing population. And I think the general concern of people who didn't want the fixed anchors in the Uh, Wilderness was that they were afraid that it would be kind of an eyesore or something that people would see.
5: Back in Unaweep Canyon, Chapman says fixed anchors are also key to making the sport accessible to new climbers, like the ones who will be practicing on the route he's about to install. I believe that these days the majority of climbers are looking for routes where the risk has been mitigated down to an acceptable level.
4: You can put Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper in that category, during his first year in office, he climbed up a crag with Tommy Caldwell, a legend in the climbing community. Their main focus was highlighting the dangers of climate change, but he learned a bit about the sport, too.
1: And he pointed out how unobtrusive anchors and bolts
2: are, and yet how to, to, to actually climb safely in a variety of uh, locales, you need these, these assist
1: areas so you don't have more terrible accidents.
4: To him, it makes complete sense for Congress to step in and clear up any confusion or questions about whether fixed anchors can be used in wilderness areas, national parks, or other federal lands.
1: So uh, we wanted to make sure there was absolute clarity that this is an essential part of wilderness areas as well as our national parks.
4: Back in Washington, D.C., Hickenlooper got language that would allow the continued use of fixed anchors for rock climbing in wilderness areas added to a bill that's now waiting for a full Senate vote. Over in the House, a bipartisan pair is also working to pass similar legislation. The bill was introduced by Republican Representative John Curtis and Democratic Representative Joe Neguse. During a hearing on the bill, Neguse said it's simply about ensuring a clear standard for a practice that's been happening for years.
1: There are a number of national forests that have in effect changed the the rules of, of the game, right, that have begun to treat these fixed anchoring devices Um,
4: differently than they have been treated previously. The House version of this bill is also awaiting a full vote in the chamber, but this idea may have a hard climb ahead of it. The National Forest Service and the National Park Service have both raised concerns about the bills, saying it would, in effect, be changing the Wilderness Act. Earlier this year, Chris French, Deputy Chief of the National Forest System, said in the hearing that the policy is also unnecessary because they're working on guidance to address this issue.
1: And I, I believe that you'll see that almost every issue that's been brought forward in, in your bill will be addressed.
4: According to a spokesperson for the service, they are close to publishing draft guidance, which would be open for 60 days of comments. But they don't have a set timeline for when that guidance will be out. Climbing could be an apt metaphor for how bills become law. Hakenlooper says you go up on a route thinking it's straightforward.
1: And then they find they can't get through a certain point, and they have to go climb back down and, and find a new route. That's like, that's like legislation.
4: Right now, with bipartisan support in both chambers, the approach for the bills looks clear. But with opposition from the agencies, there might be some tricky bits ahead.
0: That is CPR's Caitlin Kim reporting from Washington and Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess in Grand Junction. Finally today, we remember a Colorado music pioneer who transported audiences to another time and place. Max Morath was a pianist, composer, TV personality, and author with a deep love of American popular music, especially ragtime. Born in 1926 in Colorado Springs, Marath graduated from Colorado College. He began in radio, then moved to TV, hosting popular shows on Denver's KRMA, a precursor to PBS.
3: Ragtime. The word still has an excitement about it, doesn't it? A charm. Makes you think, not just of a kind of music, but maybe of a time, too, when piano players dressed like this were seated at pianos like this and making big money in sporting houses and saloons. The name of this TV series is The Ragtime Era. The series itself is about all of America's popular music, from 1890 to the Great War. But it wasn't all ragtime in those days any more than all of today's music is jazz. But ragtime was the thing that people got excited about. It was the thing that was going to change our popular music more than anything's changed it before or since. Ragtime was more than just a new kind of music. It was a national issue.
0: Max, Mr. Ragtime Marath, is credited with the genre's revival in the 1970s. He toured for decades, logging more than 5,000 performances, from the Gold Bar Room in Cripple Creek to the off-Broadway stages of New York City. He told KRCC in 2016 his mother helped him develop a musical appetite and discover the beat in his fingers.
3: My life in the music business was not necessarily limited to ragtime. But it was my entree, you might say, partly because I played when I was a kid. My mother, who was in Colorado Springs for years, but she was a very good pianist. And she came out to Colorado Springs when she was, I don't know, 19 or 20 years old and played for the silent movies. And she had a lot of ragtime sheet music. So I grew up playing rags. I didn't study the piano a great deal as a kid, but I did manage to conquer the two-handed playing of rags, and then I got very interested in popular music in general, including the theater music of that same period, and uh, the work of Irving Berlin and George M. Cohan and Jerome Kern and George Gershwin. So I put it all together in a lifetime of uh, being an entertainer, and it uh, served me well all my life.
0: Max Marath was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame in 2016. He passed away earlier this summer at age 96. We'll let Mr. Ragtime play us out today with Scott Joplin's classic, The Entertainer. Matters with thanks to my team.
2: Tyler Bender,
1: Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
4: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
5: Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano,
0: Shane
4: Rumsey, Chandra thomas Whitfield,
0: and I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC.